darkness. Lord, I surrender to holiness. Wash me and purge me from uncleanness. Direct me part and order me step. I'm falling short to you, my country. This is what you have to do, my Christian. Everybody's doing pretty well. I hope everybody's out here. I'm recording pretty early, um, both like in the day and from when this will come out. I'm recording on a Saturday because I'm taking a little trip. You know what I'm saying? No, let me stop. People gonna think I'm either selling drugs or selling ass, and neither neither is the case. Although we're not opposed to really either, but especially not the latter. Um, no, I'm going out of town, and I don't know actually if I'm going to do well. I think I will be back by the time for the next pod. So, um, you know, I'm not gonna say that I'm not gonna do it if I decide to give myself a, a, a week off because I will let you guys know, and I haven't. Missed a pod since I want to say the new year, so I've been pretty consistent. So it is a little time for me to you know chill the fuck out, but you know whatever. We'll see, we'll see, girl. Cause yeah, we'll see. Um, I opened the podcast with uh, Minister Marion Hall. I saw this on uh, Twitter. People thought it was Lady Saw, and it isn't. But but I will say that shit was hilarious, but not in a disrespectful way. Like, shout out to Reggae Gospel or Gospel Reggae, whatever. Obviously, I can't put the whole track because of things, but, and you know, I didn't, I, it's a fair use, you know, because I do think it's really interesting that the art form can be used in this way. Like, I know for me, like, when I heard that beat, I turned up, like, turned the the fuck up. Like, it was just like, okay, now, like, I've gone from... Like, I was making the gun with my hands. Like, really shooting up. (laughs) Like, licking shots from a church song. So, shout out to that. We love that level of engagement. Um... So, yeah, because I'm doing this on a Saturday in my neighborhood in the, in, like, in the daytime, I cannot vouch for the sounds you may hear. I will tell y'all motherfuckers right now that I live in, an, especially my section of the block, block is loud, building lit. Saturday is like people, I have seen people put turntables and speakers on like the front, like on the sidewalk and just get lit. So... I mean, we'll see. We'll just hope that, you know, it stays pretty cute throughout the duration of this podcast. Um, yeah, so there are a lot of things that I want to talk about today, and I'm really not sure. I mean, to me, obviously, it's all connected, but, like, I don't actually know how I want to get started on it. I, I will say that y'all went to the city MD to get my uh, COVID test. Because, you know, I try to test, or I try to test frequently. Like, you know, I try to keep it cute because you never fucking know. But I went, and my blood pressure was high. And here's the tea. Like, I generally have low, like, not, like, like, pathologically low, but I have, like, you know, low, normal blood pressure on the low side. I will say that my blood pressure being as high as it was was kind of crazy at my age, but I just know the stress like that I'm under on my my personal life and just like how I'm trying to get through and navigate this space and just the healing that needs to happen and the just where we are as black people in society and I was thinking to myself as when I left the city MD, I matter of fact, let me stop saying city MD because they're not paying me to say city MD. So when I left the sh- the shit, how it go from city MD to the shit? But when I left the clinic, um, 
Oh, I'm giving myself a massage and it's distracting me. But when I left the clinic, it was like, I thought to myself, how, how are black people supposed to survive this shit? Because if it's not one thing, it's the next. Like, my blood pressure is high. My, some of my hair fell out. I was like, I am stressed out. And it's like, just being conscious. Like not, It's like there's so many things going on for the average person. Like, if you don't have some kind of economic privilege, you're worried about... You're worried about you know, what you're going to do in August when some of the extended unemployment benefits run out or, like, if you're even somebody with some economic privilege, like like a white-collar job or something like that, you could be worried about the fall as, you know, households lose income, then the stock market will reflect that, then corporations will respond. like... All of this stuff and the government's trash and then they're killing black people, they're killing trans people, they're killing, like, and then I've had my personal things and my family and stuff. It's just like, how are black, and then COVID, it's like, how are black people supposed to survive? Like, how can we fight every single thing? Like, healthcare inequality, economic inequality, racial, like, you know, criminal justice things or just like all of these things and how can we do that and stay alive so you know that's gonna be my project for august um or for like i always say like leo season because leo season is always kind of rough for me but you know um for leo season that's gonna be what i try to figure out like what is going to be how am i i'm going to take care of myself and really parent myself through um, it's funny because I think of Leo season as a time to parent myself. I think it's because like both of my parents are Leos and I think, well, this energy is just around. So let me really, really focus on bringing myself, telling myself difficult truths, breaking down difficult, um, like habits or bad habits that I have and just trying to figure out. And I do this every year. And, like, the painful things where I got to cut niggas off or whatever my beef is, like, it, I use this time to do it. So, you know, girl, it's coming up, child. It's coming up. Um, so what I wanted to talk about, I guess there are a few things. There are a few things. Well, they're really just two, but I'm going to try to, you know, group them together in a way that's not, like, crazy. Like, you know, the way my mind works when I meditated on the future so the immediate future as in what the fuck is T Q3, Q4 I was like and not even just this year but in the next five let's say I thought to myself that it's possible that the marginalized are going to have to purchase freedom with suffering, deliberate suffering. And I don't mean that the same suffering that we've endured must continue in order for us to have liberation. I mean that we are going to have to adapt new forms or adapt to new forms of suffering to get the change we need. For example, if we accept an enhanced stimulus package from the government. Let's say Bush decides to send us all, I mean, not Bush, sorry, Trump decides, I'm really over Trump, so, like, let's Trump decides to send us a stimulus package in September. So let's say August comes, households are suffering, he does another, like, you know, citizen stimulus package in September. Or maybe he does it in October. What will happen 
is that everyone, especially President September, everyone, a large portion of his base will be happy that he did it. He, it will look like he has saved us, has delivered us some economic ruin, that he's exercised some kind of prudence and pushed Congress to, to act. Like It's going to look like, not to my black ass, it's going to look like he saved the day. And what happened, and this is something that a lot of cis straight men do in general, but they, you'll do nothing, and then when you do one thing, you want to be praised for that one thing. Because in the context of all that you have done, it does look like you did something good, but in fact, you just did your job. Like, you just did the minimum, the bare minimum of your job. So in September, let's say, you know, the Congress, you know, passes something or whatever, and Trump takes the sort of marketing ploy and takes the marketing branding element of it. And like like he tried to do with the stimulus checks and having him sign it, you know, his signature on the check. If he does something like that in September, it's going to look like he governed. But it only looks like you govern because you haven't been governing. Like you haven't been doing the bare, the bare qualifications, the basic qualifications of your job. So now that you've, you know, sent motherfuckers a check with your name on it, people that are, I'm not even going to say dumb, but people that are in the throes of suffering or like that don't think critically will be like, you know what? He came through in the end. I'll vote for this motherfucker. Biden's, he's sleepy. The, the way to ensure that he is not in office or he is not reelected is for the country to go to shit. Is for us to not have. It, what, what, would, what would clench Biden's victory would be for households to suffer, to barely have enough money for food, no discretionary income, for there to be no consumer spending because, you know, our GDP um, and the U.S. is largely, our economy, so GDP aside, because it's an old metric, but our economy is largely driven by consumer spending. It's, It's very, very largely driven by consumer spending. And it's like, when you think about just, sectorial like economics or whatever you think about you really only have private spending government spending and international investment as your sort of high level buckets republicans and just not even just republicans but people contemporary like economists or whatever the neoclassicists and this is not i did not mean to go into economics right now but like Because there are only three parts and Congress or whatever doesn't want to go into deficit from the government spending, they don't want to spend money. That means in order to have everything stay the same, the other two sectors would need to compensate for that, right? So we don't want to go into a recession, the government would need to spend more money. Well, the government, if the government, we want to not go into recession and the government is trying to, you know, engage in like a policy of austerity, so to spend less money or to be stingy about their spending, then private spending and investment, international investment would need to increase, right? Corona is going to curtail the international investment. Nobody, I mean, not even just like, that shit's not popping, and we don't have any fucking money on the private side to do this. So private side both being like individual, individual people and corporations might have money, but they are going to be pessimistic, so they're going to save it and not going to spend it. So 
essentially we are fucked, right? I mean, in, or, in order for us, and I don't want to say we're fucked like in a way that's like you know fatalistic, but it is like if we, if the government spends last minute to convince us to spend money, then it will look like they did a good job and it would avoid a recession, well, at least a severe enough recession, and it would look like we're on the, we're on the up and up or like pan, or the pandemic didn't hurt us as bad. If we really want to get this nigga out of here, we're going to have to starve. And the truth is, like, American culture... It's so materialistic. It's so consumer-based that when you give people money, they happy. That's it. And, like, to some extent, that's human nature, and to some extent, it's fine. But, like, you know, Americans, I feel like, can't do many... Can't hold complex ideas. Like, it's like you give people money, and they'll be, like, happy, and it's fine. But it's like, you gave me money because it's your fucking job. You gave me money because that is the way to support this economy. As I just like highlighted, government spending, you know, increasing or supporting private cons- private consumption, and the you know, like this is basic. That's your job. That is it. You don't you don't get points. You don't get brownies. You don't get dick. You don't get anything extra. Because you did your fucking job. But I feel like, you know, particularly marginalized people, so it's not really a critique. It's more, it's like if you lived in if you live in poverty, if you're facing hunger, which people are going to be facing hunger, right? If you're facing hunger, you don't have like you don't if somebody gives you a thousand dollars, you're gonna be happy about it because you're facing hunger. And I just think, like, if we really, we're going to have to let, we're going to have to let the, you know, Congress be dumb, Republicans do their foolishness. And, you know, this is not, this is not a partisan issue to me. Like, I'm saying Republicans because Mitch McConnell and because they're being, because it's a problem, like, in terms of, I mean, they are the problem. And right now, in terms of getting shit done, but it's not necessarily partisan. I mean, it's. The case that the right, this is not him to talk about, but it's the case that the right is, you know, has this sort of culture of austerity. Like, they, it's a problematic thing. But the truth is, everyone, <laughs> everyone's going to suffer. Everyone. You know, and it's the case that the marginalized will have to suffer the most. Will will suffer the most, and will have to disu- and will have to suffer the most if we're trying to get this change. And it's, un- I hope I'm wrong about this. You know, I really am. But from the way I see it, that is the best way to get the change that we're seeking, at least at the very top. And it feels like it feels like. There's this is the reckoning. This is part of the reckoning of the Americans called the American culture, like kind of shifting gears a little bit, but not. Yeah, I'm switching gears, kind of switching gears. The suffering that you know I was talking about for marginalized people is really like an economic suffering. But then there's a suffering, a cognitive dissident, psychological, like historical narrative destruction um, that needs to take place among the dominant class or people that want to be right, people that want to be for the cause and, you know, don't really know how to ride. Y'all, oh, I'm not even going to say y'all, they need to think of the need to look in the past look backward and say and contend with the truth of the history the the history their history the history of this nation is a history of violence and enslavement and oppression it's not a history of freedom 
This is not a tale of freedom. This is not a country built on liberation. This is not a country built on, you know, noble ideas. It is a country built on genocide, slavery, injustice, inequality, theft, looting, piracy. And that's it. And like, you know, kind of, I, I, I am aware that, there, that both ideas can, that there can be a paradox. The paradox of, you know, freedom and not. And I mean, I guess that is the truth. The truth is that to some extent, both ideals live in this, both phenomena, phenomena live in the same place. That Slavery was next to freedom. And that is always my inclination to find a, the complexity of in a synthesis. But in this case, I'm not entirely sure that it's that it's that it is like that it is that nuance that both ideas can live together. And it's not just that they're contradictory, it is that any freedom built on enslavement is not freedom. It's no freedom at all. The people that think of themselves as American citizens, including myself, but we're going to get into this. This is the important thing. So this is the second thing I want to talk about. But our freedoms have been purchased on the abuse or oppression of somebody. And in some way, being the marginalized, being part of the marginalized group offers me a freedom that my oppressors will never have. And I've said this before on the, on the podcast that when I get shit, when I get shit done, when I build success, I know that it's I know that it's mine. I know that I deserved it. I am aware that, you know, my gender privilege helped me, but I'm also aware that me having a lot of feminine energy and the way and we're going to get into this tea in a minute, but not even just the feminine energy, but the way I present offers me benefit but also really sets me back. And when I commune across gender, I am recognized by everyone on the spectrum as somebody that does genuinely good work. I am recognized as somebody that does, that has talent, that has a viable perspective. Look at me talking about shit. But like, you know, that does good shit. Nobody comes to me and say, oh, because you're a man, you, you, you know, you, do, you get away with trash. Because I, I don't get away with trash. I mean, that's just not what it means to be me, to be, a, to be my type of queer, black man, dark skin. That doesn't mean I can't get away with, being, with just, you know, doing some regular shit. And because of that, the pride, in, when, when I do succeed, which in my view is not really that often, but when I do get it, I can feel really, really good about it and be conscious and not need to peddle and, you know, lies. But I think when you are not, if you are part of the oppressive class, the oppressor class, and you are honest and you are conscious, any success you have is going to be tempered and qualified by the suffering of other people. And your life is going to be learning to find peace with that, which, I mean, most of y'all do it easily, frankly. But the truth is that, well, your house is built on the bones of slaves. Not just the bones, but the rotting flesh, because people are dying now and you, oh, for your freedom. And that sucks. Like, I don't, you know, like, I don't want that. And so in that way, you are not 
free in a way that I want. You're not free in a way that's enviable. You're not free in a way that's, you know, edifying, that's ideal. You know, you, this is toxic, your freedom. It's necrotic, your freedom. Like, it's not a freedom I would want. And it's not a freedom that lasts. And I think that's what we're seeing. When, when I say re the beginning of a reckoning for this country, a beginning of a reckoning for, you know, American culture, I, I'm really talking about that. Um, so, for the black people... And I guess I'm going to start with, you know, BIPOC, which I really hate that term. Every time I hear BIPOC, I think bisexual people of color. I don't know. I'm trash, but that's what I think. So I'm going to start with a conversation for black and indigenous people of color. And then I'm just going to go to black people. For all people of color... And really, any marginalized group, but like I said, people of color. We adopt this idea or this system of a hierarchy of privilege in the context of our community. So... What I mean by that, I actually just might just skip to black people. No, what I mean by that is, and I've been guilty of this, even on this podcast, where I'll say, hey, the Native Americans had it really bad. Genocide, the robbery of their lands, like, you know, everything from like smallpox blankets to rape to slavery as well. Like that shit sucks. So when I think about the hierarchy of oppression, I put Native American, like, I, like, you know, in the past, I would put Native American trans people probably at the very, very bottom. You know, the, the poverty that exists there, like, that shit is trash. Like, don't, if you are, like, a like, Native American, you know, differently able trans person, I'd be like, you really don't have shit. Like, you know, in... In the way of thinking about like the higher the, the oppression Olympics, I would think like that. Recently, I looked, I thought about stratification, echelons, well, just hierarchy as a concept. And I'm not saying that higher there, I'm sure there are traditional, you know, long-standing like African, you know, whatever cultures that had hierarchies too. But what I'm saying is, you know, in a way, in this, if, if you're going to be anti-capitalistic or you're going to be collectivist or, you know, if you're going to really fight for a concept of equality, then I was like, well, let me, let me investigate the way I think, like the logic that I apply to solving these sort of problems. And when I did that, I was like, okay... Is equality in the method? So not in the content, but in, in my reasoning, is equality there? Do I naturally stratify? Do I naturally put things in hierarchies? Do I naturally, and not really things, people. And I thought, yeah, when I'm fighting for liberation, I put people, my, my people, I put them in a hierarchical structure where I will say black cis men, like just said we're doing black, you know, people, but like, let's say if we do BIPOC in general, I would put the black man, the black and indigenous mixed person who presents as white or at least white has enough white privilege to, you know, be fetishized by white people you know, in, in a very, like, exotic sense, but not be, you know, attributed at all to the negative stereotypes of blackness. So I would say, like, them, the straight ones, cis, those people, and then I would have put, like, native, you know, like I said, in the, at the very bottom, or outside of that, I would have put, like, black trans women at the bottom. 
That's how I kind of would have structured the Olympics. I structured the, 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 you know, the pyramid of oppression. And then I thought about it and I was like, the truth is that one, if I want to, if I really want to be about this equality shit, I have to embed it in my reasoning. I have to embed it in the way that I think about people in general. Second, the truth of the dynamic, and this may be unpopular to a lot of you motherfuckers, but the truth is that there's really no such thing in the in 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 particularly in the black community. But you know, I'm gonna do a little historical thing and then I'll, you know. In this group, this black and native group. It's really, there's no such thing as a hierarchy of oppression. And there might not be, period. You know, there's, but I'm not going to do that because I don't know. I haven't thought about it. You know, that's not how we experience this. That's not, that's not the truth of our experience. So when you look at Native people, for example, like there's, just, there's been this conversation about, for black people, about reparations. When we think about reparations, we think about reparations for slavery, well, the most narrow use of the word reparations, reparations for slavery from America, from the United States of America and the federal government for slavery, specifically. This is not the kind of broad application of reparations that would apply to, you know, Jim Crow and everything. If we're applying it to um, the United States of America, the federal government, we should also apply it to the five civilized, quote unquote, civilized, you know, native tribes, because they held slave, they held slaves too, you know. In the early white settlers, convinced Native Americans to enslave each other. Okay, that is the history of American slavery. Okay, American slavery. I won't say started, but the early adapters included Native American slaves, Native American tribes enslaving other tribes and selling them to white people. Okay. In the early 1700s, like 1715, there was that Yamasee War. Where the Yamasee tribes, I think it was like Lower Creek and some one other tribe lost, but they killed 7% of the white population in this, in this war. That made white people, that shook white people up. White people were like, you know what, these, these motherfucking natives will, will, get, will hem my ass up. So why don't we... Stop trying to enslave them because they are difficult to enslave because this is their fucking land. So they know how to escape. They know this shit better than I ever will. So let let me let us convince them to 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 be part of the slave commerce. By the end of the seventeenth century, you know, late seventeen hundreds. The, the native the, the large native tribes were were enslaved black people as well. By the 1860s, you know, at least four of the tribes were had were just as populated by black people as America is now, right? So what if we're like 13% now, you had 15% of the Cherokee population constituted by slaves. 14, you know, Choctaw, 14%. The Creek folk, 10%. And we're going to stay at the Creek. We're going to go back to the Creek. Chickasaw, 16%. This, these weren't a little bit of slave holding. These were a lot, a lot of their, na- a lot of their population. By a lot, I mean proportional to what we are now. We're slaves. We're black slaves. When they're, when... You know, um, slaves were emancipated. Civil War. You know the treaties with the with the native um, with the native popul- native uh, nations. I guess the five nations, the five tribes to free slaves. 
I think four of the five did choose to enfranchise black people, acknowledge, you know, give them, you know, tribal citizenship. Over the course of the, the 20th century, a, a lot of them defected, decided not to give black Americans descendants from the slavery and obviously racial mixings racial mixing, tribal citizenship. So disenfranchise them, right? Went against the 14th, I mean, obviously they don't have the same 14th Amendment, but the same strategy of removing citizenship was applied to black people. As late as 2001, right? Like, they, they, they people, these tribes are, have the ability to modify the membership, and you know, they did it as late as 2001, excluding black people. So, is it correct? And then we saw, and I don't know the exact legality, but the Supreme Court just gave a, almost half, if not half, of Oklahoma to Native people. Which in some way is obviously right, I mean, you know, but it's like, but we are still being murdered and, and incarcerated and all of this. Is it right? Is it accurate to say that natives are at the bottom? Like when you want to apply hierarchy, like this hierarchical idea, this, you know, reasoning, who... Is it right? And when, and when you think about who's at the bottom, who's at the bottom, who was who is exonerated from doing harm, who deserves protection the most, who deserves who deserves protection as a function of who they are. When you think like this and you move like this, in my in my mind you're adopting what we're fighting against. You know, you're adopting an elitism and exceptionalism that we're fighting against. One, and two, you're probably wrong. You're oversimplifying the dynamic. It is not the case. You know, it is not the case that, you know, it's not fully, it's complicated. It's complicated. You know, in the Yamasee war, like I was saying, obviously black slaves fought against natives. Because they had to. They were enlisted in the efforts. You know, and it gets, it's just, it, it's complicated. You had Florida obviously being a property of Spain where natives did flee. There were black, there were Negro forts. Like, you know, when Andrew Jackson was a governor, he attacked the, 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 the Negro fort because he was afraid that the Negro fort in Florida would inspire slaves to revolts in, in, the, in the north, so not Florida, and flee. So it's like the Negro fort, though, was a maroon, quote-unquote maroon, like a mix of the black Seminoles. Or Seminole, I think it might be somebody who said it, but I've been saying Seminole, so I'm gonna keep saying it, but I think I might be saying it wrong. So it's just like it's a complicated oppression is complicated. So leaving the black indigenous conversation, I mean, and just footnote, this also would apply to any Afro-Latino conversation, even though I don't really, like I say, like Afro-Taino, Afro-Carib, like I don't really, you know, I don't, whatever, but it's the same sort of thing there. I do think it's a little less so because of other things, but this is not an episode on that. Um... <laughs> Then you move to black people. And, and this, is, this is hard for me. I'm not going to hold you. It's hard for me, and I'm, I don't want to offend anybody. But I've always put black, cis, straight men at the top. And then I put black, trans, differently abled people, women, at the bottom or non-binary folk that present in a traditionally 
female way. Or feminine way, I don't know. I've always done that. But when you have conversation with them, both groups, and you say, hey, black, tra- black, sh- black cis straight men, you know, black trans women are being killed disproportionately. Um, we have to protect them. These black cis straight men raise their hands and they say, so are we. Then we say, no, but y'all are the ones actually killing them or, you know, killing the black trans women. So you need to sit on your hands and chill out. You are, you know, which is true, obviously. But like, really, not just chill out, but you need to protect black trans women. Then black trans, black cis straight men will say, well, who's protecting us? And then you have black women or people being like, well, we're protecting you. And that's not true. You know, black women are avenging, are, you know, seeking justice, but they're not protecting, like no one's standing in front of bullets. So that's not happening. And then you have, well, who seeks justice for us? Which is true. And the answer is no one when you talk about black trans, except for black trans people. So there is... Although, like, my personal emotion and my empathy and my sentiment is that black trans women need it most. And especially when they suffer at the hands of black cis straight men. I understand that this concept of hierarchy, this concept of who needs protection the most, this concept of who can have the privilege or have the peace of mind to say that they're free from harm, that they're free from the title of oppressor, that they have not done any harm, that they've not been violent to other people. People, there is a desire to have that. People want to feel innocent. That, that feeling of innocence, that feeling of des- deserving protection, Those things are crucial to the oppressed person's ethos, to the oppressed person's theory, to the oppressed, to the language of of liberation is often littered with this concept of innocence. But it's not necessary. First of all, it's not necessary. There are things that are evil no matter no matter the innocence of the person right and this this concept is crucial to abolition but it's also crucial to black unity it's crucial to understanding human human rights and civil rights we like the concept of innocence but innocence is not important when we're discussing the right to live or die It doesn't matter if, you know, there's a a black trans person that might have done you harm, that might, that might have, you know, that might have, you know, been violent and we can get to that. I'm going to get to that in a moment. So in that way, no, they are not innocent. That doesn't mean they deserve to die. That doesn't mean they don't, they don't deserve protection and it's equal. Like, this is stupid. They deserve everything. Just because there's black... And I think, you know, the oppressed, unfortunately, when, you're, when you have dealt with black cis men, I think a lot of, I think women understand this, where it's like, yeah, this black straight man is not innocent. He's hit me. He's abandoned, neglect, abuse, but that doesn't mean he deserves to die. And a lot of people come to that, come to that understanding and that, that's what mobilizes the justice. And I think that understanding is something that's missing from a lot of, you know, black straight men. But in general, male or not, I think it's disproportionately male, but male or not, This concept of innocence, although it's psychologically important, 
And it speaks to both the, the state of actually not having done anything wrong and speaks to being protected. Although it's psychologically important, it is getting in the way of the mobilizing that we need to do. Everyone has done harm. Everybody. And I think that we all, including myself, need to wake up. If you are a black queer man, you've likely done harm and have been harmed by many people, including your own. You know, when you look at, for example, I think it's, let's, let's go to, I'm going to go back to black queer men, but I'm going to start with, I think, trans women versus, black trans women versus, you know, quote unquote versus cis black women. And I talk about this with my friends all the time. And I mentioned it on the last podcast about beauty. When you look at Janet Ma, and I love these women, like I don't know them, so I, I, I admire their presentation. Janet Ma, Laverne Cox, I am obsessed with uh, India Moore. They are, I mean, I'm obsessed. These are people that are beautiful in ways that maybe less so India, but you know, I don't want to give them an exception, but are beautiful in ways that if they allow, well, beautiful in ways that oppress in some ways, black cis women. We talked about Laverne in the last episode about the blonde wigs, the thinness, the long hair, the, the, the expensive clothing. When we lift up Black, you know, Afro-Thaina in India's case, but like black trans women, when we lift up the Angelica Rosses, even though that's a rare exception that we lift up a dark-skinned woman, period, but it's actually dark-skinned trans women, woman. When we lift them up, we're lifting them up in the context of, as I said in the last podcast, conventional white supremacist beauty. That does exclude, and not just exclude, but it enacts violence on cis women. When we say that is beautiful, but we still don't make room for the overweight black girl, and we don't give the overweight, and I hate even saying the word overweight, but the bigger black girl, we don't give the big black girl, you know, her own narrative or her own plot line on a, on a show and she's just used for humor and entertainment you know we still can't we still can't get a big black girl lead we still can't get that but we have pose that's violent and we want to act like oh well you know, obviously, because black trans women are being black trans women are being killed, it cancels out that. And maybe on some utilitarian, you know, philosophy ethics, it might. But the truth is, when we're talking about what's blocking us from uniting fully, it is that pain, that trauma of well, I can watch Pose, but I can't watch me. Don't be a dark-skinned big black girl. I, I, I can't even think what well, we had. Uh, what's her name from Gabrielle Sidibe? I never knew how to say her name, but you know. We, I mean, Precious, we had her in this movie. It was a story, and I watched Precious once. I can never watch it again. It was, yeah, she had a lead, but it was a story of her body being violated over and over and over again. That's what that was about. And that's what we got to see her in. And then we had her on the side in Empire. We had her in American Horror Story. Which, I mean, American Horror Story, I was like, wow. We really, they really put her in there. Ryan Murphy, and I don't really cape for him, but 
a gay, a gay man, okay? And, and, and in this way, it's important, right? Like, in, in even a white man. And Ryan Murphy has done a whole bunch of fuck shit. So I'm not going to defend him. But what I will say is the person that gave her that opportunity was not a trans woman. Was not Janet Mott. Was not a black woman. And this is in the way that black women are violent to each other. It was Ryan motherfucking Murphy. And these things matter, right? And then when we talk about beauty in this oppressive way, you can go to black gay men. I mean, myself included. And that's because I'm one of my character flaws is that I'm vindictive as fuck. You know, it was funny. I was reading my birth chart. And it was saying that people with Mars and Capricorn, if they're your enemy, they like will stop at nothing to destroy you. And I was like, you know, I thought I outgrew that trait, but it's still somewhere in my soul. But I'm working on it because, you know, forgiveness and all of that. But I have been in conflicts with black women or women in general and destroyed them on, on a lot of different levels, but appearance being one. You know, black gay men, and I mean, I think it's, a little, it's changed a little bit, maybe, maybe. But as I said in the last episode, black gay men are often packaging these oppressive, like, aesthetic ideas. We're often the, 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 the manifest, we're often the, the, the uh, design architects of this uh, oppressive aesthetic. Because even if we lift or reference or steal something that we see from a black trans woman, woman, the truth is that black trans woman is probably not getting the job because of gender privilege, right? So when it's time to do makeup, when it's time to do, you know, actually make the money off of some of the aesthetic or a transformation on the aesthetic, the person that's doing it is rarely a, a, a trans woman. So now you have these black gay men, and I think not even just from the whole trans woman thing, you have the fact that being a man means that you can look from the outside. And there is that stereotype of like men being visual. I don't know how true that is, but whatever. If it is true, it only aids the argument. But... You, you have this aesthetic, you have this aesthetic sensibility that you may or may not have stolen or have stolen part of it, whatever. But because you have more a slightly more economic privilege because you're a man and you have the opportunity, the vantage point, because you're an outsider, to look at women and critique them in the same way that you critique men because, you know, you know or you critique straight men or men that don't look like you, whatever you are really reductive. You reduce women to, you, to their instrumentality and their instrumentality being their aesthetic. And that is violent. That's violent. But, you know, so when you have that, but, you know, there were decades and this is still the case where... You know, I've heard lesbian women call black gay men, the feminine black gay men, faggots. I, I was not, I mean, I was able, I will say like, I have been able to move and go to lesbian parties, but I have been to lesbian parties and there be a little smoke my way. I just don't give a fuck. I never gave a fuck about it, to be honest. I, I, I don't care. But there are a lot. But I have been in spaces myself where a, you know, a black lesbian woman that is has masculine energy, you know, ag stud or whatever, will try to be shitty to me. And what I have done in that scenario is respected this person's masculinity or respected their space because I, this is their space. 
and I can perform whatever you want. I mean, I you know I don't. If if you want to do like sort of like stereotypically masculine things, I'm fine with you doing that because I don't I don't care about any of this shit. But I have seen people like be so mean and oppressive to black gay men in their space, and by people I mean black lesbians. I have seen that shit all the time. Just be really, really nasty. And not just in the queer space, but we all know the stories of the black moms who, and I'm so grateful that our mom has not been this way, who abuse their, their gay son directly or indirectly in terms of what they say about masculinity. You know, homophobia is, the, the stereotype is that black men are, black fathers are teaching their sons homophobia. And that's not true and we know it. We know it's not true. Homophobia, misogyny is often taught to men by black women. And when you teach a man misogyny and when you teach a man homophobia, it's not just that you made him in a vehicle of oppression, but you've also oppressed him directly, even if he's not gay. You're teaching him that he can't be emotional, that he can't have emotional range, that the only space for him to get intimacy is violence or sex. You know, you're making a monster. And when you make a monster, you compromise humanity. So it's like, we have all done violence to each other. We have all done violence to each other. And when I say this, trust me when I say it's difficult for me to say it. I'm not out here being like, oh, willy-nilly, ha-ha-ha-ha. No. Because when I think of black straight men, when I think of black straight men, when I tell you, it's particularly straight men in general, no part of my soul is like, oh, these niggas deserve protection, that they're innocent. They're not, I mean, obviously they're not innocent, but it's like that I owe them anything. I don't think that at all. I mean, when my, my personal understanding of black straight men, of straight men in general is that, you know, they're extractive. They steal, they just steal, 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 steal. Like, I, that's, I have my own personal trauma. So when I say this, trust me, I'm not saying it, you know, I'm not pandering. I'm not saying it because I'm on some, some kumbaya shit. I really don't fuck with that. I, I, I don't fuck with it on an emotional level. Like, at all. And anybody who knows me personally know I don't trust them. Like, it takes a lot for me to trust them. And what trust even means, like, I don't know. But I have to deal with the fact that I'm, I'm sure, I know I've caused some of them harm. And like I said, it's hard. I don't, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I feel bad because I don't. I don't want to lie, you know. But... If we're talking about oppression Olympics, if we're thinking about oppression Olympics, for example, I now I'm in a point in my life where, like, you know, I don't have no money, and I'm really trying to survive on my own creative output. I think as a mode of politics, I think my politics kind of demand it, but also just like survive. But even though I might make some changes, because you know, COVID. But it's like, now I don't have money, whatever. But I have had money. <laughs> I was a banker for seven, I worked in finance for seven years. And I have been able to achieve things, economic privilege, educational, like elite educational, you know, attainment, that a lot of black straight men, because we're talking about black people now, but true for straight men, haven't. I mean, I have had elite access to and success in elite institutions that a lot of black men haven't. 
that most people haven't, period, that a lot of black men haven't, and some of it is a function of my sexual orientation. And I talked about this a little bit last episode. Um, this is a long episode, sorry guys, but it's this one needs to be long, I think. Um, should I pause that? I don't know. <laughs> but a lot of that is a function of my sexuality, my sexual orientation. Because I don't present with the same kind of like the same black masculinity masculinity that is stereotypically you know stere- that stereotyped as aggressive that is stereotyped as untamable that you know and not even just that, I think because people witnessed, because institutions witnessed my sexual orientation, like they knew that I was gay even before I might have known. And they saw me as someone in school narrowly, because just school, saw me as someone that needed protection. And because I was smart and succeeding, like teachers like helping smart people. So it was like, one, teachers gave me extra attention because I was smart. Two, they gave me, they had a sense that I needed protection, particularly later in my life, not earlier, because they treated me like trash when I was in um, elementary school. But like, junior high, it's really like eighth grade when shit got really popping. People saw me as needing protection. I was not invited to to sell drugs like I had, you know, allegedly had friends that, well, I had friends that allegedly sold drugs and friends that were allegedly in gangs. I was not invited to the gangs. You know, I had friends that were, you know, allegedly fucking in, 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 in stairwells and talking about getting people pregnant. Like, I didn't, like, I didn't have that. Because I was not invited because they knew I was gay or they felt that I was gay. And guess what? That not being invited saved my motherfucking life. It wasn't cool for me to move like that. So you combine all these things, I was able to achieve a life that many niggas have not, cannot from where I came from. You know, I have family, like, you know, it's not, it's, I was not invited to these things. And then it's like, even going within our own community, and by our, right now I'm talking about black queer men, there's colorism, obviously, because of white supremacy. But it's cute to be feminine if you're light-skinned. It's cute. If you're a light-skinned boy and you've got some kind of like, you know, white supremacist like thing, this white supremacist aesthetic, if you've got your long hair, your green eyes, your, your you know, not even just green eyes, if you got your light skins and a little bit wavy and you're feminine and you're small, that's cute. You have, you have mass, you have gay men will wife you, will see you as beautiful, you'll get compliments, you'll get beauty and, privi- and pretty privilege. And it's some weird, I don't quite understand it. I mean, it's, well, I do in that whiteness, whiteness somehow, somehow connotes the positive or quote unquote positive aspects of femininity. That, that innocence, that needing protection, that delicateness. That delicacy, really. But I hate the word delicacy. It reminds me of food. So, the the delicateness of humanity, of people, of feminine people, and it's it is adored as pure. So even if it exists in like you see it all the time when you in porn, you'll see like a black man fucking the white bottom. There's that submissive, that white submissive, and I think that's you know related to something else too. But that's gonna be another episode. But you see all the time in the concept of white femininity, white womanhood, and black womanhood. Something like that exists with black gay men as well. But when a black gay man, a dark-skinned black gay man is feminine, he's not cute. 
They don't, they don't lift us up like that. We're funny. We're hey girl. We're hey sis. They laugh at us. They, they enjoy us. We're entertaining to them. But they don't lift us up like that. We don't get those opportunities. We don't get that pretty privilege. We don't get looks. We get laughs, but we don't get looks. And it's something that has all has been. It's a betray. People feel like it is a waste. And don't don't <laughs> let me not get into the tea. I'm about to say some shit that I need to wait for another episode for. But like, they see that some kind of weird betrayal to black masculinity, to a masculinity, a, a, a privilege, or, or some kind of. I don't even know some inheritance that I'm sh- that I'm you know shunning. So all that to say that it's a complicated dynamic and it's something that we need to we need to disavow ourselves from this concept of innocence. We need to say, hey, I know I've done you harm. I know, and I will start. My black women, my trans, my black trans women. Or people, including black trans men, the black, anyone in my community, I'm sure I've done us, you, you all harm because I was raised in a white supremacist, patriarchal, elitist, capitalist structure. And I'm not telling you to fight for me because I am innocent. I'm telling you to fight for me because it's what's right. I'm telling you to fight for me because we're a family. But I know I am not innocent. And my innocent, so the, don't, don't feel like you need to fight for only, only fight for people that have done no wrong. That will never, you need to fight for all of us if we want to move on because we all have done wrong. All of us have has done, all of us, or everyone has done wrong. So with that, I'll leave you. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be here next week, but you know, well, not next week, I guess, whatever that, that would be the 21st, I think. I don't know. I don't know, but stay blessed, stay cute. Um, thanks for rocking with me and enjoy your week.